Welcome to Sungha and Raz's Nutrition Perspectives. Come along with us as we explore diversity in dietetics. Hi everyone, it's Raz today and I've got two awesome guests with me. We've got Harpreet and Ria here from the British Sikh Doctors Organisation and we're Really lucky to have them on board. So without further ado, maybe Ria, you could start. Do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey into dietetics? Um, yeah, okay, great. Thanks, Russ. Well, firstly, um, thank you for having Herbreet and myself on here. This is very exciting. I don't think, I've definitely not done anything like this. Herbreet's a bit more social media savvy, but uh, me, not so much. I actually have to ask Herbreet, is do you like go on video on a podcast and she's like no no no, it's just your voice but I still have to wash my hair before coming on just in case (laughs) um yeah so um hi everyone my name's Ria and um I've been a dietitian for uh close to four years now Herbreet and I studied together uh at King's College London and that's where Ras went as well um so we we sort of go back from from that angle we've we've actually been together since our undergrad we did biomed together at king's um and then we did our masters in nutrition and then did dietetics so we took the long route but yeah it's been quite a journey and um yeah so I've, i work in london hoping to specialize in in oncology um so it's been been a great journey so far so as Ria mentioned, we have a fairly similar journey um, into dietetics. So I um, uh, have been working as a dietitian, well, I graduated in 2018. And um, so we both did the same undergrad courses and then the postgrad as a diploma. Um, but I had a year in between um, doing a master's in nutrition and the postgrad diploma dietetics um, where I managed to get some really really insightful experience um, working as a dietetic assistant um, at a London hospital in a head and neck department which was really like eye-opening for a wannabe dietitian um, so that kind of then really spurred me on to um, apply for dietetics um, and you know gave me a really really helpful experience to show that I kind of knew what I was getting into um and then I kind of just yeah went straight into an acute job really um started off on bank um in a hospital for a couple of weeks and then um have just I've moved around kind of around London hospitals um and that's where we are now great thanks so much you guys what about I mean, did you know that you guys wanted to be dietitians from school? How did you guys realise that that's the route you wanted to go down? Because you obviously had done a Master of Nutrition even before you did your DA job. To be honest, I I think like many people at 18 had no idea what I wanted to do. But I knew I wanted it to be in healthcare. And I knew I didn't want to be a doctor or a dentist. <laughs> so that ruled those two out quite easily. And then... Um, in our undergrad as a in biomedical science because it's so broad um, you can do different modules in different areas Um, and that's kind of where I came across nutrition as a topic but actually I never chose it and Rhea did um, interestingly 
then at the time, I think we probably got talking about it and it, I was just like, oh, that sounds interesting. But equally, I did this. I don't know if people still do this, but you can do like an online quiz into like what type of career do you think would be good for you? Oh, that's how desperate mm. I was. I had no idea. <laughs> um, I don't even know. I think it might have been an NHS one like on their website. That came up with number one as a biomedical scientist, obviously, because I was already, this was like in my second year, I think, as biomed. I think it was second or third came up as dietetics. And before that, I'd never even heard of a dietitian. Didn't know what what they were, what they did. And was it even like a, you know, an actual job? Like it was, (laughs) who I had no idea. So, yeah, it was just one of those things. And then we kind of just got more experience um, doing volunteering um, which we'll talk a little bit more about, I'm sure, later. So, yeah, that's kind of how I how I heard about dietetics. Cool. And, yeah, I completely agree because I know you mentioned at the beginning, you know, you knew you didn't want to be a doctor or a dentist. And that's quite a typical South Asian view of, like, parents being like, doctor, dentist. Um, but actually, there are lots of other jobs within the NHS as well. What about you, Ria? That's funny because I was quite the opposite to Ria. I I was like dead set from the womb that I wanted to be a doctor and that you know I would strive to be like the world's greatest doctor I like at the age of 16 I was in India you know these gynae clinics watching women give birth and c-sections thinking that it was going to be great experience on my you know whatever you do at the time personal statement you know like really did like ticked all those sort of (laughs) weird and wonderful and quirky boxes that you do to try and get into medical school Mm. and I literally had thought I had the best application and uh, didn't get offered a single interview for medicine Um, and that's when I thought that's when you know I took my fourth option at the time of biomedical science at King's Mm -hmm. and obviously that's where I met her brief for the first time I went with the flow of life, basically. My teachers at school said, don't give up an opportunity at King's, you know, to do to do biomed. You'll, you'll find your way, basically, somehow. And if you're meant to be a doctor one day, you will. And if you're not, you know, this, it'll find, you'll find your path. And um, so I started at King's and, you know, it was a fun, fun first year, a lot of learning. And um, we got offered to go study abroad. So I took the opportunity and went to Singapore for my second year, um, along with some other friends of ours. That's actually where I started to pick up my first lot of nutrition modules. And it was really sensationalized nutrition modules like, you know, salt and hypertension and soy and breast cancer and just all the really fun stuff, really cutting edge research at the time. So I just thought it was great. And there was something about Singapore. It was the food. You know, I don't know if you've been to Singapore, but I mean, it's like food haven and everyone that goes there just raves about the food. It's a mixing pot of cultures. There was a family that we would occasionally go and stay with, uh, you know, a Sikh family. Um, it was it kind of they were the only sort of people that felt like home at the time. That particular family that I used to stay with, the mum was very there was something about her. She She loved cooking and she loved cooking healthy foods and. There were just a lot of signals coming to me that I somehow I'm really becoming interested in in food and health. Also, Singapore was just a massive learning opportunity in the sense that I grew independent and started to think that there's so much more to life than a career. I felt that if I had gone down the medicine route, I wouldn't have flourished for that reason. So I'm married to a doctor now and I see the life that he went through with his training 
And I look back and I think I would have never survived that. So I'm so glad I didn't do it. Came back and I spoke with my cousin who at the time um, was one of the senior liver dietitians. She was, has been my inspiration since I was very young. And so I spoke with her and she got me some work experience and that's just where it all started basically. And it's been go, go, go since then. Uh, and, it, and it's been great and haven't looked back at a single moment, I thought. And I think, you know, every day I thank my stars that I, I didn't go down the conventional medicine route and become a doctor. I mean, it's great being married to one and having one in-house so you can ask them all your problems. <laughs> but me being one would just would have, you know, been a recipe for disaster. And you're so right, because this is something we were talking about the other day, Harpreet and I, that, you know, what is a dietitian? it's not just an Asian problem, it's it's a global problem. We're having to mm-hmm. answer that that question mark about w- what we do as a career. But mm-hmm. we have that additional challenge within our community because, you know, dietitians in India, what are they? They sit behind a laptop, you know, prescribing food mm-hmm. plans to overweight ladies that can afford it. No offense, I mean, yeah. they're obviously more, that there's more structure to it when you go into healthcare. But mm-hmm. from a public from a public point of view, and for anyone, any extended family that you know, I might tell that I'm a dietitian, they'll just sort of pat their stomach and be like, "Well, how can I lose weight?" And it's just so much more than that. And it's that frustration of trying to tell people, "My job matters," but you know, unfortunately, you'll only really know unless you experience it one day, or you have family that will experience or encounter a dietitian. So I think that's been our probably been our biggest uphill challenge is like BSDO has been great in that we've we've actually been, you know, we, we started as nutritionists there when we were doing our masters. And, you know, we became the first dietitians for BSDO um, to represent them at screening events. And it was really nice to be able to represent the profession in the community you know to show that we're we're legitimate like we actually exist and this is the job that we do um so yeah I think that that's probably one of the you know it's been it's been great in terms of a career but trying to sort of allow people to understand what we do especially within our community hasn't necessarily been the easiest yeah no I think you're definitely right like even my mom like not that long ago was like oh one of your cousins in India has been given a diet plan. Why don't you do something like that? It's just the misconception. And it sounds like your time in Singapore was super eye-opening where you really found yourself and found what you wanted to do. So that's really nice to hear as well. You've probably heard from some of the previous podcasts and obviously we want to link a bit of BSEO onto it as well. We like to hear about people's lived experiences, some of the challenges and the good things. Do you mind telling us about your lived experience is within the dietetic world yeah I think it kind of touches on what Ria just mentioned before in the sense of in Punjabi for example or probably many kind of South Asian Indian languages even any foreign languages there isn't a set word for a dietitian or even nutritionist so it starts from something as simple as that people not really knowing what to call you let alone mm. knowing what your job involves or what you do and I think we find that obviously more in our particular cultures. Um, and it's just, yeah, in, I think the, the probably the good thing is that actually we were speaking about it the other day, the pandemic in terms of COVID 
has really highlighted I think especially like personally from my family what <laughs> what I do and why it's so important um like I get still get phone calls from extended family and they'll be like oh so are you working from home are you still having to you know do you still go to work like do you still have a job <laughs> like uh yeah pretty much because actually we're very much involved in nutrition and when you tell them you know you work on the wards or you're doing this you know that's so kind of important for recovery of of these patients they kind of I think now start to get the message um and especially when you you know you might mention I come home and I sometimes mention what's happened you know in my day and I talk about tube feeding patients and decisions we have to make and it's just I think the reality of it kind of has hit them a bit more Mm -hmm. um in terms of in terms of what what we actually do um and I think we probably find that even more so in the older generations uh like my grandparents for example don't really yeah wouldn't if you asked them what I did they probably would have they wouldn't even know (laughs) like they know I work in a hospital and they know they know I do something to do with food but only until recently when my grand uh grandfather unfortunately ended up in hospital because he has he's got cancer and well he had cancer and he lost a huge amount of weight he then asked you know I, I obviously offered my input and then got um, in touch with dietitians uh, where he was and then kind of he realized the importance of nutrition and what our specific role is um so yeah I think that's probably in terms of areas which need work on that's probably the main thing I would say is just to try and raise awareness of what we actually do um, and I think that's where BSDO comes in uh, really mm-hmm. it's really kind of the one way main way we can kind of um tell you know be present amongst uh doctors dentists pharmacists people who are traditionally seen as healthcare professionals or you know the top tier in in our culture so yeah i think i think it's been a brilliant experience to be honest um so that's yes being able to do uh, events where we can travel around the country and raise awareness within our, you know, Gurdwara, within our Sikh temples, within our community centres. It's like the heart of where, you know, everybody congregates. It's been really, really good. So, yeah, I'm sure Ria will talk a bit more about that. Yeah, and it'd be great to know what you've done, obviously, since COVID, because I know a lot of your work was going into communities um, and giving public health messages and things like that as well. Um, Ria, do you want to come in and talk about your lived experiences? Um, yeah, I think what Harpreet's saying really hits home. Um, it, you know, we can only really echo the same things about, you know, how close friends, family might perceive the job that we do. And I think COVID and having the opportunity to do things like the video that, you know, the, the series of videos that, BSDO were posting about different health professionals and what we do behind closed doors was eye-opening and things like Facebook and WhatsApp are a great platform as we know I mean that's how fake news spreads and that's how a lot of a lot of unfortunately (laughs) our friends and family get all the rubbish dietary advice that they do and I think I literally just got Mm -hmm. um, a WhatsApp message from my father-in-law today about something about all I could see was this man in front of a blackboard and he was writing the words ghee on it. So he must be trying to convince me that, you know, ghee is the best thing for me to eat. And I've got nothing <laughs> against it, but 
you know, they do try their best. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, it's it's really really hard. I think it's really hard because we come from we come from a community where it is ingrained in us to to almost what you know to do what our neighbor does, and there's that very kind of sort of village type mentality that you know what what so and so does or what so and so says is gospel and you know it, it's worked for them so it will work for me and like we were laughing the other day that you know once my granddad had ordered like a hundred pounds worth of coenzyme q10 supplements and all these other cardioprotective supplements mm -hmm. home um and it's because his friend down the road had ordered them as well and you know had given his recommendation i think i was a student at the time and i was like dad you totally like completely wasted your money on this but you wouldn't have it and i'm like you know believe me trust me i'm i'm doing a qualification in this like i'm doing a degree in this i'll tell you you're wasting your time but um you know they'd rather hear it from somebody else <laughs> who's got zero qualification um because that's what they're used to doing and not really used to thinking for themselves and um taking the time to read facts and be able to appreciate what is you know not genuine um and I think it's the access to that as well isn't it and I think that's what makes BSDO so great and the work you guys are doing so great because where will they go for that for that information hugely like we were remembering the other day when we were our first ever screening event with BSDO so we were not even I don't maybe I had just registered or something hopefully and you were still doing your mm -hmm. DA job and mm -hmm. we, we were so young basically into the field and into the career and BSDO took us to Leicester for our first ever screening event and um, we'll never forget it because <laughs> we were right by the door we were right by the entrance we were sort of like the welcome show and um, we had we decided to make it you know we looked into all of the things like how do you access ethnic minorities and everything we went super prepared we had a we had a laminated um, South Asian ethnic plate you know the eat well plate uh which we'd like edited ourselves on microsoft word and then got it like laminated from the local stationery oh. shop and then we went in with like harry had made these amazing um infographics that we, we put in plastic covers and we we took little so our, i have a bsdo bag where it's literally like a little you know box of rajman little box of beans a little box of oats a bottle of olive oil um tinned goods um so funny and yeah so we would take that and they would be our visual aids and I remember like we had a queue of people a queue of, of Sangeet at the Gurdwara lining up down the entire corridor because they heard that a group of health professionals had come to provide free screening you know so just just being able to stand on the scale and wow. take their weight or to know what their height mm -hmm. was and to know what their BMI was, was such a huge thing for these people. They were queuing up to stand on the scale. I mean, something as simple as that, which you think you would access in your house every day, these people were coming to the Gurdwara after hearing that it was a screening event. And then, you know, we were educating them around what we thought were really normal things, like we'd taken avocados and, you know, walnuts and olive oil bottle, you know, monounsaturated fats and all that kind we were trying to educate them around all these different things 
And, you know, these people haven't even heard of what an avocado was. So, you know, we're dealing with that kind of pocket of of people, mm-hmm. um, you know, dealing with that level of socioeconomic inequality that, you know, these people probably don't even have mm-hmm. access in certain cases to their GP, let alone, mm-hmm. you know, specialties under one roof. So for them, it was they were hearing things that they've never heard before that were just so unrelatable. And we were also pitching way above, you know, what we thought was <laughs> quite average. Mm. Uh, so that was hugely eye-opening for us. And that was our first ever event. And that's just so interesting. Um, we have a podcast coming up with a student dietitian called Sabrina. And she was just saying the amount of dietitians who just talk about overnight oats. She was like, stop <laughs> talking about overnight oats. And exactly for the reasons you've just said, um, the health inequalities that people from ethnic minority backgrounds face and the socioeconomic difficulties is huge. And it's something which I don't think we talk enough about within our education system, including university. Really interesting. Have there been any challenges or positive things within your workplace as well? I think, I think, I don't know if I'm, if it's the right to say I'm lucky in a sense, but I feel like I I haven't really experienced anything personally, um, you know, mm-hmm. where I felt, oh, this is because, this has happened to me because of my skin colour or because of my background or because of, you know, where I'm from but it's but it's like as I think as you would get with anywhere when people can't pronounce your name properly or they just call you the dietitian even though you've been on the ward for like weeks and months you know and it's because nobody wants to take the time to find you know to figure out how you say your name properly or I think having uh, colleagues for example who who are uh, who don't have that experience with working with people from different uh, cultural groups, me kind of being mm-hmm. the only one who can really relate to, you know, those types of you know, cultures, for example, um, we have a, a Sikh patient recently, um, and it's considerations, you know, specifically with their diet or their lifestyle and how that's going to impact, you know, their nutrition at the moment or their thought, you know, thought processes and beliefs cultural views that type of thing so I think obviously that's where diversity is important isn't it that's what we're talking about but um, I think in general uh, we're probably underrepresented um, as Mm -hmm. Sikhs, Indians, South Asians generally in in our profession Um, so I'd say that's probably where obviously we need to do work on a larger scale Um, and that's where things like this doing podcasts doing you know joining up with other dietitians to kind of spread awareness and share the information like you're doing here is really really brilliant yeah the name thing has just come up time and time again it's so important to get it right even if you ask multiple times because you can't remember how to pronounce yeah. someone's name and it's, just it's so funny important. I don't know where I heard this but a while ago um I heard something like it might have even been in the Black Lives Matters uh uh like movement at the time when it was at its peak um, when somebody had written well if people can learn how to say Tchaikovsky then you know surely they can learn how to say 
xyz whatever your name is so it's just yeah I think it's just taking that time and being considerate about you know just a simple thing Mm -hmm. such as learning someone's name so yeah I think it's important so true what about you I mean I'm literally like smiling at that because I came across a situation where it wasn't around someone's name but it was around a a word that I was pronouncing and people in my office thought that I was pronouncing it sort of a bit strangely I was a bit off with my pronunciation and I thought god if I gave you you know (laughs) or if you gave me a pound for every time you pronounce something wrong um or inaccurately you know I'd be a millionaire um and you know it's just so funny because uh, unfortunately you know whether it's through the innocent lens or whatever it is but you know non-ethnic people just are quite clouded uh, when it comes down to this this concept um and you know for them being able to pronounce their names to pronounce it understand their holidays and their festivities or you know, like we're saying literally something as simple as pronunciation uh, is considered quite you know it's, it's almost an expectation that people know but to be able to pronounce an ethnic name an African name an Indian name Asian name you know oriental it would take it would take somebody who's taken the time and effort and be like learned to to do it properly and unfortunately we can't just expect that from the wider society it seems strange when we're mm-hmm. born here brought up here we have british values we very much do the same job as you we speak the same language as you we share the same hobbies as you we eat the same food but you know, you won't mm-hmm. go to that extent of asking, by the way, how do I actually pronounce your name? What's right? Mm-hmm. You know, as opposed to assuming that that's how a name is pronounced. Yeah. Um, like we have, we had someone in our department for ages called Mandeep. Um, and, I, you know, but but unfortunately was, wasn't the sort of the clearest spelling in the sense that it was spelled M-A-N-D-I-P. Um, but you know for ages she was Mandip and I was like you know the lady's name is Mandip (laughs) I mean it's it's not Mandip you know unfortunately that's that was obviously how it was spelled and so it phonetically whatever that's how it came across but you know realistically think it through I mean that's obviously not going to be the lady's name and you know her her name has Mm -hmm. meaning and in her culture it would mean something and it would be pronounced a lot more sweetly so you know take the time to know that that's not how you say it and say it in a way that you know her parents intended for it to be said absolutely and I find it quite interesting for so potentially like Irish names I do find people they seem to cling on to those a little bit easier but then yeah if it's somewhere from like Asia Africa it it just doesn't get the same kind of time absolutely and And no you're absolutely right you know there there are a lot of just within dietetics I mean we have a a large Irish population um and you know there's there's been a lot of Sinead's and a lot of Siobhan's and (laughs) a lot of Neves and obviously they're not spelt how you would necessarily pronounce them and but you know we don't mm. we don't go out of our way to mispronounce it we we go out of our way to learn how it's pronounced so that you know we don't embarrass them and we don't embarrass ourselves but for some reason 
it doesn't necessarily work with like that way with ethnic names. It seems to be okay to create a new version of it, like an anglicized version mm. of it, but I don't think it's mm. okay. Go ahead. I agree with that because especially longer names, you often get asked, oh, is there like a shortened version that, shortened version that I can say, or you have a nickname, yeah. or can I call you this instead? And it's just like, uh, no, why? <laughs> you know, if I've told you this is my name, I'm not going to give you an alternative. It's very, yeah. I don't know. Obviously, it's individual. Some people might might not mind, but I think on the whole, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's something that needs working on <laughs> for sure. No, and I think definitely this past year, that's actually something I've been thinking about because I've been called Raz since I was in school, but was my name just shortened for that reason you have just mm. said as well. Do you guys mind telling us a little bit before we move on to kind of Sikhism, culture, food, that kind of thing? Could we just round off this part by, um, would you guys just tell us a little bit about what you want dietitians from non-diverse backgrounds to know about and also maybe something you would tell your younger self? Ria, do you want to go first? Yeah, we were kind of um, brainstorming some ideas for this because it might come to us naturally, but... um, (laughs) For the what we would like, you know, non-ethnic dietitians to know would be, especially coming from a sort of a Punjabi Sikh perspective, um, it's very much in line with sort of the names thing. But, you know, being able to identify what a Sikh is or who a Sikh is, I think is huge for us. Just to have the recognition that we are who Mm -hmm. we are. Um, so whether that's a fellow staff member or a patient, just having that recognition that we have our own identity, you know, we have our own sort of tags where we're either sings or we're either chorus and being able to identify that as part of somebody's name and saying, oh, that person's a Sikh and this is what a Sikh is, I think would be a huge leap and bound in in our profession. Um and obviously the, the sort of the dietary restrictions or potential dietary restrictions, the way you treat somebody, the the kind of the knowledge of, you know, that our, our practice, our code of conduct would be, would be huge. You know, it would be, it'd be massive to, and to, to instill people with that confidence that, you know, we're, we're an approachable community that we're, you know, we're very humanitarian. We'll talk more about that, but to be able to appreciate, you know, that we we are where we're a community in our in ourselves, um, I think would be huge. Um, and I think telling younger self, sort of, you know, don't shy away from doing things that aren't normal. Um, to to, you know, feel free to explore and do things against the grain, because that's what where conversations start and that's why you get invited to podcasts and get to talk about it because you're doing something different and people like different and people want to listen to different because same is boring and then we just end up becoming one big Mm -hmm. bubble of the same people and if we don't branch out then you know people can't spread the word about Sikhi people can't spread who we are if we're all doctors and dentists and pharmacists you know 
how will people ever know who we are if we don't branch out and we have the confidence to to speak up and and do different things um so I'll go back to the first part of the question which was kind of um just a little bit extra on what um Rhea said about uh Sikh uh kind of the religion and the food uh, dietary requirements so in terms of food um and even being Punjabi or being uh Indian I guess in general South Asian the food plays a huge huge part of our kind of day-to-day life um and is also integral mm-hmm. to our culture um and I think we might talk a bit about later you know different ceremonies and how to celebrate and how food is so important but also kind of even uh for example my grandma whenever anybody walked through the door literally anybody a stranger a family member as soon as they walked through the door it was have you eaten anything do you want me to make you something to eat and it's just that kind of mentality of actually food is how we show our love you know if you're cooking for other people Mm -hmm. or how we you know sit around you know sit down together and enjoy that time together show that you care about one another which I guess is you know the role of food in the world you know whatever society or culture you come from it can be um but it also kind of forms more in terms of uh longer which is part of kind of the Sikh um religion in the sense that it's kind of a provision of free food and drink to all if you were to go to any Sikh temples or gurudwaras um and that is a way in which you know they show you know our compassion equality um and humanity and essentially anybody who who wants to can walk through that door no matter what religion you are or what background you are um and it's just something to be aware of I think um, because if you have that kind of background knowledge of you know the the mentality or the culture of where these people come from you'll understand why for example they don't necessarily want that spaghetti bolognese on the hospital menu or why they don't want that sandwich or why they don't want that I don't know jacket potato because these aren't the types of foods that I'm talking obviously like the probably the elder generations but um, these aren't types of foods that they would normally be eating Um, and then that can impact on their behavior and their recovery and they can come across as aggressive, for example, you know, because you're not they're not really being listened to or they're they struggle a bit more than others. So yeah, I guess there's a kind of lots of different elements to talk about there. Um and then in terms of the younger self, I actually what Rhea said really, really just hit me because I would say probably only in the past year or maybe a year and a half, I've really kind of thought or reflected a lot on what I share in terms of on social media because I have um, like a a social media page on Instagram etc so I think before when I was a student and when I just started out I was kind of sharing what everyone else was sharing like you know the quinoa the chia puddings like you know things that we wouldn't our grandparents or our families wouldn't necessarily eat because I think that's what was more like trending or you know more popular at the time I think more recently I've kind of grown Mm. into seeing actually probably from seeing other people other dietitians um, share more about their own culture um, and what it means to be Punjabi or Sikh 
um, and kind of just tailoring a bit more what I'm what I'm sharing in terms of you know health information or recipes or mm-hmm. um, ingredients and things like that and with you know with whoever's listening or whoever wants to read about it um and I think before I don't know maybe it was just a bit of like you kind of just want to you want to fit in don't you you want to do what everybody else is doing so I think now by being able to see other people who are you know raising awareness about I don't know what their grandma eats on a day-to-day basis for example it's just nice to see that because that's what really is my day-to-day life so um yeah I think talking thinking about what I would tell my younger self is actually don't be scared to talk about the roti and the sabji that you had last night you know and like how it can be nutritious and you don't have to give up jol uh, rice or certain foods to be healthy essentially and, and really help, you know, spread that message amongst amongst your family, your friends, anyone who's listening. Definitely. And I think it would be really helpful for, like, spreading that message within our student days as well, but just for our other colleagues to learn about. Want to jump in a little bit more to culture, Sikhism and kind of foods. I don't know who wants to start, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about Sikhism and I know there are some recent things going on in India maybe you can touch a little bit on that as well yeah no I think this is a great opportunity um just to sort of potentially like brief the listeners into what what Sikhism or Sikhi for short um is essentially about and it's it essentially is a journey and a path um so being a Sikh or a Sikh is essentially uh, somebody who learns, is on a, a journey of learning. And we're hopefully enlightened by our gurus, um, our what were our living gurus, um, which translates to being a teacher or somebody who brings light into darkness or bringing you out of darkness into light. Um and it's that sense of enlightenment. And Sikhi was was established and founded by Guru Nanak, who was the first of, of 10 gurus. And now Sikhs don't believe in any living, living guru. So following our 10th guru, Guru Gobind Singh Ji, he passed on essentially the, the, the rights of, of continuing the, the guidance to what is now our written holy book, which is the Guru Granth Sahib. And that's placed in every Gurdwara, which is our temple um, that you visit. And some people will have have the holy book at home as well. And that's that's treated and regarded as the the be all and, and end all of, of our religion. So we, we don't engage or we're not supposed to engage in ritualistic activities or pray to idols or in any way picturize um, and, and re-sort re of reform our, our gurus in, in a living form in any way. Um, so it's it's very interesting that Herbert was talking about Lunga because that is essentially the almost where this humanitarian kind of 
movement started. So Guru Nanak was almost, was born a Hindu um, in a time of, you know, very, of civil oppression between Hindus and Muslims. And um, essentially found enlightenment in, 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 in a concept um, rather than a religion. And that concept was what we know today as Ik Ongar, which is how you might want to interpret it as there is one or, you know, one one is all or God is one. Um, you know, everyone has different interpretations of it themselves. But it's the sense of th- there is there is only one. Um, and that is uh, one sort of race, one humanity, one gender, one essentially we, we we shouldn't be fighting over this concept of disparity in religion because in all of that what we do is we essentially forget the concept of god so our path as as a sikh on this earth is to essentially reach enlightenment through some form of a connection with with this higher spiritual being and that's through essentially the pillars that have been put out to us, which is doing seva, which is selfless service. It's meditating on the name of this very enlightened, amazing guru that we almost can't describe. He has no form, um, no name, Vahe Guru. And to work very honestly, so Kirtgarni is to work with, with true honesty and never lie and be deceitful and so it's essentially writing the script for a very simple and honest life that provides a lot for others other than yourself and Lunger was set up as a communal kitchen to provide to the masses during times of migration during times of war and it was everybody irrespective of caste creed religion to come and sit down, whether you were a rich man or a poor man, you sat down together and you ate langar, which was cre- which was cooked in a sacred form, in a very pure form, purely vegetarian, so that everybody could eat it. It was not made in any ritualistic form, so it meant that Muslims and Brahmins and, um, you know, Kashmiri pundits, etc., could all sit down and eat together whether they wish to or not is different, but there was no discrimination. And, you know, that, that established over the, the guruship. And we, we see, we hear stories of our gurus essentially being what we called saint soldiers. So engaging in warfare where it was necessary, becoming a warrior race, but in doing so, you know, they provided a lot of support on the battlefield as well. Um, so providing arms, providing water, providing medications. And that's a huge part of our blueprint as, as Sikhs is to go above and beyond to help the wider community, irrespective of race and religion. And that's something to be so proud of, um, I think. And, he, you know, massively to, to have that almost that identity scripted for us by the last guru to ordain a certain uniform so you know having men and women wearing turbans keeping their hair long 
you know, wearing our garas, wearing the 5Ks like you might have been taught in RE. You know, it's a real concept and it it's something to be very proud of as a heritage because people will look back and say, you're a Sikh, you know, you at, at times where we were in battle from far and wide, if you saw somebody coming wearing a turban, you would know that that person was coming to help you. And that's how we identify as Sikhs. And even now, you know, you look at charitable organizations like Khalsa Aid, they're being, you know, highly regarded by people, you know, when they were helping the lorry drivers and you have people like SWAT doing homeless runs every single week without fail for people in central London, Reading, you know, you, you could pass by them wearing a turban. They'll think you're here to help. Um, and I think it's something to be so incredibly proud of. And why not talk about it on the rooftops and shout about it and tell people who we are? It's nothing to be embarrassed about. We should promote Sikhi and promote who we are. You know, we don't look different for for a reason. We, we are different. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, it's fantastic that you've even given us this opportunity to be able to educate, even if it is 20, 30 listeners about Sikhi where when they might not have known any of this and apologies if I mention anything wrong or inaccurate so yeah no I think Rhea's kind of mentioned it all in terms of Sikhi um and and what you know the basics of kind of what it's all about but um I guess this would also be a good opportunity to then talk about um what's going on in India at the moment that there is what is now called being called the largest protest in history occurring um in delhi at the moment in india um and that's because they it's been going on for years decades but more recently it's kind of culminated in um the government creating some changes in in some agricultural laws and um you know tweaking them slightly um without really consenting anybody that would be involved so um because of that some some changes have been made to the laws um which i won't go into in detail but essentially the result the farmers fear is that they will um be exploited essentially um, by by large corporations. They'll lose their autonomy, and essentially, um, farming forms a huge percentage of kind of the jobs um, in India, um, especially in in the in that population. And they will experience more kind of loss of livelihood and in some cases their lives as well it's very hugely complex topic I'm not (laughs) I'm not here to say I'm an expert in it at all Um, but actually more recently I've really just been astounded by this happened it started um, to culminate back in November last year so uh, a few months ago and I just couldn't believe like the power of social media versus the actual media in what we were even aware of was happening so for example the farmers haven't been treated very well at all they've faced oppression violence and more recently violations of their human rights which has been awful um and i learned literally everything i know about it just from social media from people who are on the ground citizen journalists photographers 
um, who are helping us see what's really going on. Um, so I kind of just felt really compelled. I was like, how can I know about this? But, you know, my colleagues at work don't know about it. My neighbour doesn't know about it. Um, and it's just, it just, it really hit home, I think, when I saw videos of people who are my grandparents or great-grandparents age protesting on the streets for, for their livelihoods. And it's something that it won't affect just us, our culture or that country. It's, you know, these farmers are producing food, um, spices, fabrics that are, you know, bought and used around the world. So essentially it's it's a huge it's a huge topic um and i think even just helping talk about it here and raise awareness talk about the most simple parts of it um is the least that we can do really um and just to raise awareness that there's a phrase which is you know no no farmers equals no food and that's it put in the most simplest terms yeah that's really powerful and it's, it's really nice that you kind of you know spoken about the background of Sikhism and then gone into kind of recent affairs as well and thanks so much for sharing all of that so far in terms of kind of food and culture around food in Sikhism could you tell us a little bit about that as well and maybe like if for example a Sikh patient came into clinic or was on a ward what kind of things would be helpful? Yeah, I think that's a great question. We we were talking about this the other day because we, um, well, her you know, has, has recently had a Sikh patient, and um, I had one a while ago where we were actually considering them for a gastrostomy. It was interesting to kind of get the team on board just to fill them in on you know what what this Sikh gentleman with a turban was all about and um, who he was and what sort of what his kind of social construction was and I think that's the key with with our culture is eating and drinking is not we don't eat and drink to live we live to eat and drink you know it's a social construction we enjoy the concept of this concept of sangat which is community um, and being able to eat with family and friends and that's why you know COVID's been such a (laughs) such a huge hit because that what is so normal to us um has really been affected that that ability to go to the gurdwara and sit with with people and be able to share food uh, in in respect to each other and be able to serve food is it's it's huge it's it's part of our complete social construct um so you know for example this elderly patient who we were considering for a gastrostomy was somebody who would visit the gurdwara three times a week or something that would be part of his lifestyle go he would sit with his friends have his basic, you know, chapati, dal, sabji, and that's something that he would look forward to and that's what he would live for even if he was dysphagic or had reduced intake or couldn't manage the portions that he did or even if it posed some sort of risk to him. That's what he would have chosen over having artificial chew feeding, which just wouldn't have been considered necessarily so almost, I wouldn't say socially acceptable, possibly in that generation, you know, as generations have gone by, we understand, and especially in younger generations, we understand the importance of having things like artificial nutrition. But for the older generations, you know, putting that in place and potentially replacing their livelihood is um, really something to be considered. You know, we can only medicalize things so much. And sometimes you just kind of have to let tradition do its thing. 
Um, and it's very important for those kind of patients because they want to feel like they're being heard as well. So, yeah, and I think, you know, bouncing off what Habreet was saying earlier, understanding that, you know, Sikhs have n- naturally generated from the northern region of India, from Punjab. I mean, you have a lot of migration following that. So you'll have some African Sikhs, you'll have Oriental Sikhs, you'll have Southeast Asian Sikhs as well, um, Afghanis. Um, but, you know, ultimately, the the sort of the bread and butter of what they'll have is your basic wheat-based meal, because that's what they grow in, in Punjab. And it will usually be, usually be sort of a vegetarian style meal, for vegetables cooked um, with some kind of lentils or beans, red kidney beans. Um, and that tends to be kind of a staple. And I think we were talking about this the other day, the concept of having a sweet dish is like integral to, to the diet because it's a way to finish off the food. It's almost a way to celebrate the food. Um, and it's something that features so strongly in all of our festivities as well. Having something sweet is is means we are celebrating something. It's it's cushy, you know. It's it's happiness uh, being able to have something sweet. So it's a way to mark mark good good vibes. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it it really features a lot. And I think that's one of our major issues when we come down to public health and understanding the concept of carbohydrates in our community is you have to understand that there's a social construction behind them having all of this. And it's not necessarily because they're stubborn and they don't want to make change. It's tradition that drives a lot of these barriers. Um, And so we have to be so sensitive about changing this without coming across as the younger generation saying, "Uh -uh, that's not what you're allowed to do. They'll, they'll, they'll argue we've been doing this for centuries. Um, yeah, no, I totally, totally agree. And we see it even when we do our volunteering, like screening events in the community, and people will come and ask us, you know, what foods can we eat to lose weight? What shall I do? Which supplement shall I take? Um, and it's really hard because actually if you're eating roti or chapati with a subji, so like a veg- vegetable or meat dish, depending on what you have um and it's traditionally made with butter or ghee um or tons of oil (laughs) um and people might have if you think about carbohydrates um uh, like a a chapati wheat roti as well as uh, rice and then as well as having potatoes in their curry like it's you have to be really um particular in how you go about giving them advice and you know you can't say cut out or not cut out but you know reduce the amount of xyz overall because it's not practical for them it's not their way of living um and if they're you know living with a family it's often people live in large families together in one household so they cook for many people or many portions at a time so it's just yeah you have to think a bit more obviously as we kind of do with everybody tailoring our our advice you know to the individual um and I guess on that point as well going back to being Sikh is if you've got a patient on the ward or you're trying to give them dietary advice as outpatient just get an idea of maybe you know are you practicing Sikh or do you are you vegetarian okay they say yes but then go a bit further because some people you know are vegetarian and they will eat eggs some people are vegetarian and they won't eat eggs um or you know some people are not bothered that there's gelatine in that supplement you're going to give them 
but other people are. So it just depends on, you know, how strict I say, I guess, in terms of, you know, they how strictly they follow being a vegetarian is. Um, so you just need to be aware of that, but also just, you know, helping point that out on a menu to them. It would be so, it would go so far with, the, you know, with these patients. Uh, yeah, I think just having that kind of awareness just to dig a little bit deeper when you talk to them and find out exactly what their requirements are um will will really help um and build you know build rapport as well with the patients and going back to kind of more a general public health elements is that it's quite hard to give weight management advice if that's you know if does it for heart, heart healthy advice or diabetes advice to people if they are eating in you know a traditional Punjabi meal for example might be roti rice uh, a vegetable dish and a lentil dish so something like that with beans and if it's cooked with ghee in the traditional way you've got like a grandparent who lives in the house and they and they're cooking for everybody um you have to kind of put into context that yes that is how they traditionally ate in their generation maybe um and our lives have changed you know if that's how traditional Punjabi food was eaten in India our lives have changed in the sense that they were you know working on the farms for example their lives are very different to what we are now which is very sedentary often you know my grandma would sit in front of the tv for hours and hours the whole day um towards the towards the end of her life so yeah being aware that obviously then trying to get that across that to the patient in a sensitive way to say actually by doing this you're increasing the risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes and actually as uh, ethnic groups we're already at high risks of these lifestyle diseases at you know lower cutoffs it's I actually mm-hmm. personally think it's tricky still and I, I you know I'm very aware of of what we eat and to give advice I think is still quite hard sometimes because it you know as with any patient they have to be in the right mindset to to want to change Um, and is there anything in Sikhism that we should be automatically aware of so for example in Islam they eat halal meat um yeah so uh, naturally sort of halal meats and kosher meats um tend to be sort of uh, um defined as kind of ritualistic killing um what would be considered pure in in those uh, specific religions but um i think what what our gurus identified at the time that that they were alive um was that what came with ritualistic killing was that only a certain type of person was able to sit down together and enjoy that kind of meat um, together so for example you know hindu brahmins um who were considered the highest of the caste um you know were were sort of pure vegetarian and then you've got um sort of the imams in in islam who would only have halal meat um and they would sit sort of in their own kind of congregation and and have their food that was cooked in a way that only they were allowed they were permitted to eat and that plays into essentially the discrimination that our gurus were trying to eradicate at the time um, and so I, ideally, you know, practicing Sikhs, if or you or, you know, what we call Sehej Thari, so Sikhs that are on on a spiritual path, if they do wish to include meat in their in their in their diet, um, the, the general 
guidance or the sort of the, the recommendation would be to to have non-ritualistic meat so so what we call chutka meat essentially so it isn't kind of cut slowly and allowed mm. to drain out um the animal is actually sort of the, the spinal cord is damaged in in one stroke um so that the dying process is minimal and painless for the animal as much as possible and i think that's really important because i know where i have worked um there was a huge confusion about this and so i think distinctions between this is yeah it's, it's just really important to raise last and final question just want to touch on things for colleagues um we know that we often celebrate things like christmas is there anything that we should be like colleagues should be considerate of within our main festivity i'd say is is probably vasaki um the birth of the the khalsa race the khalsa being the the pure race where the last guru guru gobind singh essentially created this sense of um uniform um and kind of gifted us with these names which we now all have as our middle names and which your listeners might not know so you know all Sikh men are Sings uh, which is a lion uh, and all Sikh women are Kors um, so you know warrior princesses um, or lionesses if you like (laughs) Um, so yeah we've been that was that was the day that that marks um, Vasaki that that our tenth guru stood up and and almost created uh, this this Khalsa pure race and gave us the identity that we now relate with as as Sikhs and instilled the five Ks that we talk about um, and that tends to fall around the thirteenth and fourteenth of April every year and it's you know it's a celebration for us we go to the Gurdwara we meet our friends and family we have a get together we eat great food. Um, and we actually have ceremonies to remember um, and to baptize Sikhs every year to to mark that occasion. Um, so it's 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 very spiritual. I mean, at home we we tend to make prashad, which is the sweet offering that you get in the gurdwara. We tend to make that at home, which is like flour, sugar, butter, all the good stuff mixed together with lots of good vibes. Um, so yeah, that tends to be. That tends to be uh, Vasaki April time. And then I guess, you know, we, we obviously have 10 gurus and obviously our, our 11th guru Granth Sahib Ji. So, you know, every sort of um, birth and death and uh, of, of each of the gurus is very, very important to us. But specifically, Guru Nanak Dev Ji being our founder um, and Guru Gobind Singh Ji being sort of our, our last father. Um, and I think another thing to mention is is you know, Diwali for for Hindus actually falls on the same day uh, as a Sikh celebrating Bandi Chor Divas, um, which kind of essentially translate to sort of prisoner release day, which was um, the very kind of noble act of one of our Sikh gurus being able, being granted the permission to be released from a jail that he was being held at, a fort. Um, and he was actually being held with um, 50 two I think it was two um, Hindu princes um, and he said he would only basically free himself if he was allowed to take all the innocent prisoners with him 
And um, he managed to do so. And, you know, it's essentially that concept of good over evil, um, which is very much in line with the Ram and Sita story that is uh, celebrated on Diwali by Hindus. So, you know, it's it's very much that general concept that we all share, um, the, the fight of, of and the, the victory of, of good and pure over evil. So, you know, it's not that we don't, you know, we wouldn't get offended if you said happy Diwali to us or, you know, we wouldn't uh, feel bad if you, you know, if you sort of misinterpreted that, that we celebrate it all for the same reasons. Um, but, you know, it's nice to know that other religions can celebrate things on the same day um, and they're called different things. Um, it's just it's just increasing awareness. That's all. I know Jane celebrate their version of Diwali as well on the same day, too. So, yeah. And I think. Part of the reason I ask that is because I'm a big believer of anyone listening should be putting these dates in dietetic diaries. I think, why should we just be celebrating one day? And I was actually blown away last year for Diwali when one of my senior managers bought an Indian sweet. And, you know, I think things like that, it meant so much to me. And I think things like that are so important. It doesn't have to be Indian sweets. It could be any type of food just to help celebrate. But I think it means a lot to the people who are celebrating it to celebrate all these different occasions so yeah great thank you so much um if the listeners want to reach out to you guys talk a little bit more about Sikhism or have any questions for you guys where can they find yeah you? um so how do you want to go first um I have a social media page um on Instagram um well across yeah across different platforms so Instagram Facebook and Twitter um and also on on instagram my email address is there as well so if anybody wants to contact me directly um they can do so um my handle if you want me to share it is um veggie so v-e-double-g-i-e dot nut um and that is where you'll find me and um find some recipe ideas some healthy eating ideas some just general what's going on in the world ideas (laughs) um so yeah, it's a mixture, a mixture of things. So you're probably better off finding me through her pre. <laughs> <laughs> Fab, um, thank you so much again for coming on and sharing all of that with me and the listeners. I think it will be really enlightening. Any last words before we? Um, um, no, I think this goodbye? has been fantastic, Ras. And I think just one thing I want to say to the listeners is: don't be shy to ask questions um, and to learn about other people and other cultures and ethnicities. We won't feel offended if you show interest. You know, it, there's we can we can harp on about our cultures and our religions and you know what's important to us, but we need people interested and listening. Um, so you know if you're if you're you know if you're uh, intrigued by why we do things a certain way just just ask us and we'd be more than happy to tell you and we'd we'd love to tell you yeah definitely and I think on that note equally don't be scared to ask patients either if you've got patients from you know different backgrounds don't feel like you need to know what you know exactly what they're eating or what they you know some typical cultural foods whatever if you don't know then ask and actually I'm sure the majority of patients would love you know the the chance to explain to you the types of foods that they eat or you know um what something means in terms of their culture so definitely just 
yeah, be curious and, and keep asking questions. Um, and also just to say thank you, because I think uh, this has been really, really, I've really enjoyed it. And I think hopefully it'll be helpful for other people as well. It's been really great. Thank you. No, it's an absolute pleasure to have you guys. Affected by any of the issues heard on this podcast today or want to be a better ally or support? Search Diverse Dietitian Support Group UK on Facebook and look out for further social media from us. Stay healthy, friends.